My name is Dr. Chris Jenkins, and I am the CEO of the Orient Society and the host of the Snake Talk podcast, the podcast where you learn about nature's most feared, maligned, and persecuted animals. I invite you to listen to this conversation, and maybe you'll find that what you perceive as fear is actually rooted in a deep fascination. Welcome to the Snake Talk Podcast. We have a good one for you guys today. There's there's an animal. Uh, it isn't a snake, but a closely related animal that I have always been absolutely fascinated with. I have one um, in my office that you know I frequently take out and do education outreach uh, programs with. And in the bulk of today's podcast is just going to be focused around everything to do with the natural history and the ecology uh, of Gila monsters. And we're pretty lucky today because we actually have the gentleman who wrote the book on Gila monsters, uh, and his name is uh, Dr. Daniel Beck. Welcome to the podcast, Dan. How are you? Thanks, Chris. I'm great. Uh, Thank you for inviting me, and thanks for providing such an awesome service to the herpetological community and just to the public about dispelling myths and fears uh, about snakes and snake-like creatures like Gila monsters. (laughs) Great. Well, I always like to start off by getting a little bit of background on my guests. And and so I guess the first question I'd ask you, well, first of all, why don't you tell us, you know, who you are? What what do you do for your day job and how does it relate to, to reptiles and ecology and conservation? Yeah, so uh, for my day job, I work at, uh, I'm a professor of biology at Central Washington University in Ellensburg, Washington. We're on the dry side of the Cascade Mountains, about in the geographic heart of the state of Washington. Um, so I teach courses in, in biology, ecology, field biology. I'm actually teaching herpetology this quarter, which is a blast. Uh, and then I do research um, in recent years, especially lots of work in Mexico. Uh, and I've worked with Gila monsters most, uh, if not all, of my adult life in one in one way or another. Hmm. And so, how did you get how did you get into it? What were you know what kind of the origins of you becoming interested in in nature and you know I guess reptiles in general? Is it something mm-hmm. that, that happened as a child, or is it something that kind of developed later in life for you? Yeah, well, well, for me, it was it happened as a kid. Um, I grew up in the foothills of the Wasatch Mountains in Utah, outside of Salt Lake. Uh, spent a lot of time chasing lizards. There was a, a field across the street from our house uh, full of gambles oak and sand and uh, whiptail lizards. I caught gopher snakes. And for me, uh, animals were my sanctuary as a kid. Um, and actually, it was the chickens that got me into herpetology, believe it or not. I kept chickens as a kid. And later, I realized, well, they're you know, they're really reptiles and no wonder they're so cool. Uh, and then as I, as I got older, I worked at a, a zoo, a Hogle Zoo in Salt Lake. I had a mentor, Jim Glenn, who was a, a serpentologist, a venom researcher at the VA hospital in Salt Lake, where I grew up. I met him when I was a teenager and he changed his, his uh, example changed my life. And um, 
I still thought it, when I went to college, I had to be a doctor or, a, or at least an animal doctor because that's kind of what the expectations were of me. Um, and then I think it was my junior year, I learned, uh, had a, I took an ecology class and realized that uh, there are people out there doing doing research and working on animals and uh, making a living at it. So that's that was what I decided to do. Yeah. So even as a so you were working at the Hogle Zoo, you know, sounds like when you were in high school, then is that right? I was. I was so lucky. I got a job to cleaning snake shit when I was 16 years old. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but that's a good lesson for, for anybody who's who's interested in these animals or really anything. You know, if, if you have a passion and interest, you know, go for it. So that's that's great. And then um, so you were obviously early on kind of in, uh, indoctrinated or at least made aware that you, you could do this for a living. You know, you said you, you know, you thought you needed to be a doctor or, or, or a vet of some type, but, but you saw these other people, you know, working in this field. So, uh, when did that, that became apparent when you're doing your undergrad? Is that right? Yeah. And, and I think it's interesting. A lot of us kind of feel like we have this passion for what we love, but there, there are so many parts of our culture that, that tell us we can't do that. Oh, you won't get a job. Oh, you won't, won't make any money. Uh, there's just, you know, be something useful to society. And I really uh, succumbed to that uh, until I was like, a, like I said, in college and realized, look, there's, there's, there are people out there doing, doing research and making a living. And if I can do what I enjoy and do it well, then maybe I'll get a job at it someday. So I just kept doing that. And, and you ended up, out. you ended up finishing your undergrad then with a degree in like biology or wildlife yeah. or something. Yeah. Yeah. Biology. And then I went on, um, actually I took a couple of years off and I worked as a cabinet maker for a couple of years cause I needed to do something with my hands. And I went back to Utah state where I did my undergrad. I got a master's with Jim McMahon there. He was, he's amazing. Another really important mentor for me. And that's when I started working on Gila monsters. That was in the early 1980s. And then, uh, in 85, I went to the university of Arizona and worked with Chuck Lowe I uh, did my PhD there, working on beaded lizards uh, in Mexico and rattlesnakes, and continuing work with Gila with the Gila monsters, Heloderma, and uh, yeah, finished my PhD um, and did a did some kind of postdoc work at the University of New Mexico, and then got lucky enough to to get hired here at Central back in 1994, and still here. Yeah, well, it's a great spot. I'm, I'm sure it's a great place to live, and it's a, a great spot from a reptile perspective, too. I know you have some amazing rattlesnake populations around there. Hopefully, we'll get to talk about those a little bit later, yeah. too. So, Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a good place to be. It's a long way from the Sonoran Desert and the tropics that I love so much, but I get to travel to those places quite a bit, and I also get to work with some amazing people here in central Washington and I think any anywhere we are in the country, we can we can still make a change and make you know make an impact on on people's attitudes and ideas about science and and snakes in particular, certainly. Yeah. So you, and when I say I'm sorry, when I say snakes, I include Heloderma. You know, snakes and lizards <laughs> are phylogenetically they're not really separate groups, right? They're evolutionarily they're they're not distinct from each other, and so. Um, Part of the draw for Heloderma, for Gila monsters, for me, is that they really seem like snakes on legs. So yeah. I include them along with snakes. Yep. 
they pretty much are snakes with legs, right? (laughs) But um, yeah, yeah, and I think a lot of our listeners probably know that, but you know, that, you know, uh, lizards and and snakes are so much more closely related, say, than either of them are to something like a crocodile or, you know, a turtle. So, Mm -hmm. um, and so you, you really, you started after your undergrad, you, you started, you know, with your master's, you said you were working on, on Gila monsters. And so you've been working on them for, for quite some time and, and we don't need to go in depth into the, the research projects, you know, on your graduate work yet. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause we'll kind of, you know, I think we'll touch on that throughout uh, the podcast, mm-hmm. but I am curious, I mentioned at the beginning that, that you actually wrote the book on this animal. Um, and we were chatting before we started recording and unfortunately, um, it is, uh, not available anymore. People might be able to find a copy, um, somehow online use, but, um, it really is a great book. And, and if anybody can, can track it down, I would encourage them to do that. But so when did the book come into play? You know, you talked about your trajectory through, you know, going through, undergrad and graduate school and uh is the book that something that happened during that time period or is it after you were there in washington i think it happened toward the end of grad school for me i was finishing up my phd and uh finally getting getting around to publishing a lot of the work i'd done um it's hard to publish stuff as you know it takes a lot of time and effort to write things up and go through the review process so when my paper started coming out and people got more interested in uh, Gila monsters and beta lizards. And about the time I was finishing my PhD, um, David Hardy, who was a great herpetologist, he was an anesthesiologist, actually, the founder of the Tucson Herpetological Society. He had heard that, I think, the uni- first it was the University of Oklahoma Press was interested in doing a Heloderma book, and they wanted to talk to me. And then um, I had a great conversation with Harry Green, um, Harry was another of my uh, mentors. So many of us um, look up to Harry Green and he encouraged me. And it was about the time I moved to Central in the in the mid 90s that uh, the book, the whole idea of a book on Gila monsters and beta lizards sort of came to fruition. Yeah. So, and was it a uh, – I'm working on a book right now and, and uh, you know, uh, so but I'm curious about your process. Was it a difficult process? process, just the act of <laughs> writing a book, even on something that you were so passionate about? Yeah, it it's crazy. I mean, I'm, I'm sure everyone who's written book a book and or books, has, you know, has a different story. Uh, for me, I was really excited about the notion. I, I love these animals. And uh, the opportunity to be able to write a book was like, wow. Um, but I, I almost feel as though the book just took on a life of its own. Like it, it possessed me. And um, it's, I felt like I, it's kind of weird but when you get that, that experience that it feels like you're calling, like you're, you got to do this thing. You just have to do it. Not doing it is not an option. Um, that kind of took a hold of me. I got a, I took my first sabbatical here at Central. So I'd been here for six years. This was 2001, 2002, right after the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And uh, my wife and kids and I moved to Southern Arizona and I thought, well, I can write the book in a year. I got a whole year on sabbatical. I worked my butt off and I wrote half a book. And then we came oh, back from sabbatical with half a book written, having to teach 
And at the time we were building a house and we had two small kids. We were living in a yurt and I had to figure out how to finish writing this book. And I allowed myself to become possessed. I'd get up at four in the morning and I'd go in my shop and write in the shop where, you know, where nobody could find me. And eventually I, I finished it. I, I, do, I don't think I could do it now, um, but somehow I was uh, possessed enough to, to finish it up. And the University of California Press was very patient, very helpful. And lots of colleagues jumped in to help out and encourage me. And, you know, I think all of us realize it's the help, it's the encouragement uh, of other people, of our colleagues and our family and our friends that really help us to do things that are important. But yeah, that's kind of that's the short story. Yeah, it sounds like you use kind of, you know, I often hear people when they write books, they use kind of one of two approaches. And I'm sure there are many approaches, but one is they kind of go somewhere, they isolate themselves. And that's the only thing, you know, for the on their mind. It's a it's a focus of a period of time. And, and oftentimes they kind of retreat to a you know, a place to do that. And then other people kind of have this, you know, I'm going to work on this for 30 minutes a day for uh-huh. the next year. And so it sounds like you kind of combine those two. So yeah. that's great. It's so true. Yeah. The first part got me started. And then it's very true. If you can, if you can just keep consistent and give yourself, I gave myself two hours a day and sometimes I'd write one paragraph and sometimes I'd write a page, usually not much more, but over time they all, be, uh, they add up and yeah. it's amazing what, what you can do in with time. Great. And so what's the, uh, what's the title of the book? Uh, it's a very original title called biology of Gila monsters and beta lizards. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and, no. and it came out, I want to say in around 2005, 2006. Yeah, exactly. Right? 2005, it came out in hardcover and then it came out soft cover in 2009. Gotcha. Um, okay. And so we're going to, uh, you know, again, we're, we're just about to dive into Gila monsters here. And so we'll cover a lot of different components, uh, of the book. Uh, but you know, so we're about say 15 years out from, from that. So, mm-hmm. I mean, if you were, if you were to write, you know, do, let's just say a second edition, rewrite that book. Is there a lot more information out there now available on Gila monsters that could inform, say the next generation of your book? Absolutely. There's been, you know, we're in the, uh, in a, a revolution, a molecular revolution, molecular and ecology revolution, I would say, in our understanding of relationships, uh, phylogenetic relationships among various reptile species and ecology, physiology. Uh, so yeah, there's a, a lot, a, a lot we could add some really, really interesting work, mostly done by, by colleagues of mine that I'd and we, maybe we can talk about some of that work is in the course of our conversation. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, so, well, let's start. Let's dive in and, and let's just have a conversation about Gila monsters again. Um, they're one of my uh, favorite uh, reptiles on the planet for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I mentioned, I have one in my office. And strangely, it was found, uh, it, it came to us from the San Diego Zoo and it was found walking the city streets of San Diego. And then San went Diego. To the zoo. Uh-huh. So I'm assuming it was released there. But, uh-huh. um, but anyways, now it resides in, in Georgia and it's, it's lived a, a pretty long life. It, it seems to be declining now. But, uh, but anyways, they're just mm-hmm. fascinating animals to watch. And, and, you know, I have all kinds of, of reptiles that I use for education programs. And, you know, I'm frequently 
you know, taking out, say, big eastern diamondback rattlesnakes and getting them, you know, uh, safely, humanely controlled and letting kids touch them and all this. Mm-hmm. But, but the Gila right. monster is always one of the biggest hits. So um, let's start yeah. with the name. I guess first the common name and, uh, and, and so Gila monster, I mean, wh- where does that come from? Just seems like kind of an atypical name for an animal. It sounds very descriptive, maybe in terms of place, but also in terms of, uh, you know, of what people mm-hmm. might've thought of this animal. So I'm just curious right. what you know about the origins. Yeah. yeah. Well, of course, like you mentioned place, the Gila part comes from the Gila river which courses through southwestern New Mexico and, and especially into Arizona. So apparently it was this creature that lived in along the Gila River drainage of, of Arizona that first gave, gave the name Gila to Gila monster. And then because, you know, if, if we've, we've all looked at Gila monsters, they have these, these venom glands in the lower jaw. They have these, they, these heavy jaw muscles that give their, their, give them sort of a big bulky head appearance. And then they've got osteoderms all over their body, which makes them bumpy. And to you and me, that's, they make, that makes them endearing. But I think to most people who don't know about reptiles, it, it makes them really scary. And so uh, the, the Gila monster, this, and they also, the way they walk, they sort of lumber along uh, in a, a, I find it a very endearing way, but some people might find it sort of like a monster. And so that name stuck um, back, way back. That's, you know, in the 1860s, I believe, somewhere in that time, they were given that name and it, and it stuck. And do you know so, if the first, I mean, because they obviously live beyond the Gila watershed right. as well. Yeah. So do you, do you know if that was, say, like the first, like, European discovery of the yes. animal was in the Gila? Is it, that what well, there's debate. I mean, I, I'm. That's what I think. Um, and uh, but there's also been some suggestion that the Gila comes from Helio, uh, which is you know the sun. I believe it's Greek Helio for sun. It might be Latin, but uh, so there's some debate as to whether the Gila part comes from an actual place name or from from sunshine. They're not particularly sun loving lizards, but they do have. Uh, and they don't have a sunny disposition necessarily, but they do have sort of <laughs> colors that are reminiscent of sunshine, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and there's a lot of people um, who are, a lot of us these days are, you know, we're kind of offended by this name monster. They're anything but a monster. And I have a t-shirt that says, I'm not a monster. Um, but I guess I've kind of reconciled this, this, this term monster being applied to my favorite organism with their, like, they're freaking monster. I mean, they're awesome. <laughs> and uh, you know, monster can have the term that these guys are like, they're, they're the, the ultimate, they're really they're the ultimate of being really cool. So I guess yep. it, it depends, it depends on your perspective. Yeah. That's a good perspective on it. So uh, yeah. Another animal that we were talking about before that is uh, also kind of near and dear to my, my interests is our hellbenders and they <laughs> suffer from some right. of the same yeah, what a name, naming huh? issues. So, um, yeah. and, and as I told you, I will undoubtedly <laughs> call the Gila monster hellbender at least once in this episode. Well, so, well, there aren't many names that would, would um, actually be, you know, um, a good thing to call Gila monster, but I'd say a hellbenders. That's a good one too. Yeah. And hellbender <laughs> could have all kinds of, 
positive connotations, actually. Yeah. So. so let's let's talk about where you find them uh, more broadly. So. Mm-hmm. You know, we we mentioned the Gila River, and you know, I mentioned that they don't live live just in that watershed. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But what what's kind of the geographic uh, distribution of the Gila monster? And you might also, you know, mention where some of their close relatives, the the beaded lizards, are found sure. as well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the homeland of of Gila monsters is is the Sonoran Desert. So. Arizona, Southern Arizona, Northern Sonora, Mexico, um, areas in the, you know, the, we kind of think of the classic Sonoran desert of saguaros and palo verdes and cacti and stuff and kind of lot, you know, t- lots of topography, rocks and boulders and washes and things. I mean, that's, that's classic Gila monster habitat. So, so Sonoran desert, they also extend into the Chihuahuan desert in, uh, Southwestern New Mexico, um, Eastern, southeastern Arizona, in sort of more grassland, open yucca kind of kind of habitat. Everywhere they're found, they they need they they need rocky areas. Rocky shelters are super important. Um, at least at least somewhere within their home ranges, because they use those places for especially for overwintering and for uh, escaping the heat of the dry, hot, dry season. Uh, but they also they also make their way up to the northwest of Arizona into the Mojave Desert. They get into extreme southwestern Utah, where I started my work on Gila monsters. They're in in uh, extreme southeastern Nevada in California, in a little chunk of the Mojave that kind of picks up some of that summer rainfall from the Sonoran Desert. Uh, and then uh, they're in ex- extreme on the southern side. They're in extreme south eastern or southwestern New Mexico in that chunk of Sonoran de- or uh, Chihuahua Desert, I think I mentioned earlier. Uh, so yeah. then, and then as you move south into the Sonoran Desert, into southern Sonora, then uh, that, you know, a lot of biologists think that the Sonoran Desert is really not a true desert, but rather like a, a thorn scrub because of the cacti and all the, all the diversity of, of plants that have a little more tropical origins than a lot of the desert plants we think of. Um, as you get into southern Sonora, then you start picking up thorn scrub and tropical dry forest habitats, and that's where beaded lizards are found. And there's actually one area in southern Sonora near near Alamos where both species are are found within a kilometer of one another, perhaps even within a stone's throw. Um, they they sort of differentiate into different habitats: tropical dry forest for beaded lizards, desert for Gila monsters. But uh, but that's where beaded lizards pick up. Uh, and the northern species, Heloderma exasperatum, or the Rio Fuerte beaded lizard, is up there in in Sonora. And then, if I start talking more about all the beaded lizards, it could take a long time because we go <laughs> into Jalisco and then down to the south, and then into even into part of Guatemala. We get into the other species beaded lizards. Yeah. Well, maybe mention the the species in Guatemala because I know that one is probably one of the rarest uh, members yes. of, of this genus on the planet. So it is. You might mention that quickly. Yeah, of course. So uh, that's uh, the the Guatemalan beaded lizard, or uh, they call it uh, Niño Dormido in, in Spanish, which means sleeping baby. Uh, and this is the uh, found just in uh, the eastern Guatemala in the Motaqua Valley, and it's Heloderma Charles Bogardi. So the na- the uh, species of beaded lizards, it used to be Heloderma horridum with four different subspecies. Now all of those four subspecies are different species. So Heloderma Charles Borgodi is found just in that that sort of disjunct population, 
in uh, eastern Guatemala, and it is the most, uh, it's critically endangered, and it's the most endangered of all of all the helodermatid lizards. And then I'll just briefly mention then, as you move north from Guatemala, there's Heloderma alvarezi, the, the uh, um, Chiapas beetle lizard, and its heartland is Chiapas and into a little piece of uh, uh, Oaxaca. And then uh, along the west coast of Mexico, probably the most abundant of the beetle lizards is Heloderma horridum, and then Heloderma alvarezi, the, the, um, the uh, Rio Fuerte beetle lizard up there in the north, southern Sinaloa and, and Sonora. So as you get further south, you know, so now we're talking more beaded lizards. You already talked mm -hmm. about, um, you know, this critical habitat component. We'll talk more about habitat shortly, but, you know, being, you know, that there's usually a lot of rock component to their mm -hmm. habitats. And so as you get further south and the climates are, are changing, the you know, say the winters aren't as cool, um, are you do you see less dependence on that is that or, or throughout the range of gila monsters and beaded lizards rocks one of the defining yeah, features that's a that's a great question i think as you move into the tropics into the especially in the tropical dry forest the trees sort of take up that that habitat structure that that rocks held farther north where there isn't as much where there aren't as many trees and the beaded lizards i've tracked in the dry forest they they like there's there's plenty of topography so there's uh, washes gullies and things, um, but they often will use as shelters the little holes and crevices and things in in the base of the trees and the roots, and they'll dig into those cavities and so they don't depend quite so much on rocks as they do that the structure that the base of a tree provides and then they of course they'll climb up into the trees and use shelters in the trees themselves. Ah, okay. So. Well, back up to Gila monsters and, you know, back up to the Sonoran, but I, I, I've always thought that was interesting. And you mentioned it, that there are these, you know, that their distribution is, is firmly kind of linked to the Sonoran desert, but there are these small areas where they go into mm -hmm. other very distinct, uh, you know, desert or ecosystem types in the Southwest. You mentioned, I think the Chihuahuan and the, uh, the Mojave, for example. Mm -hmm. And so, are, are there you I know that's the fringe of the range, but like, are there unifying characteristics there? Again, is it this rock component, or you know, what is it that you think allowed them to 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 leave this core of their range into this drastically right. different ecosystem? Yeah, yeah. Well, for the for the Mojave Desert, so up to the in the north western edge of their distribution, southern Utah, Nevada, Cal Southern California. It's it's they it's summer rainfall. As soon as the uh, an important component, I think I think the number is somewhere around 25 percent, 20, 25 percent of annual precipitation um, needs to be in the summer. That summer rainfall is really important. Um, most likely it's for reproduction because they lay their eggs in the summer. Um, so in the Mojave, the summer rainfall is what what allows them to exploit some areas. Although they're very different, they are those are tough places to live. Like Valley of Fire State Park, there are Gila monsters there that are are they're just badass. They're little and they're tough, and it's amazing they can even survive there. And uh, then, so then, in, on the other side, so the Chihuahuan Desert, so the Sonoran Desert, as you know, is sort of a bi-seasonal rainfall. It gets winter rain, it gets summer rain, um, and as you move farther east in the Sonoran Desert toward the Chihuahuan, you get more summer rain. 
And so that little chunk of where you find Heloderma in the Chihuahuan Desert, it's, um, I don't know. I don't know why they're there, why they're only there and not in other places in the Chihuahuan Desert. There's, there might be a bi biological explanation for that. Predators, perhaps. Seems like there are plenty of places that could be suitable, but they're not found there. Um, that where I've worked in the Chihuahuan Desert on, on Gila monsters, the topography is really important. The rocky areas, again, are super important because there aren't a lot of, there aren't very many trees. Uh -huh. And then when you get into the south, into where the trop where the Sonoran Desert mixes in with the tropical dry forest, then it's, I mean, the Gila monsters are a, a Sonoran Desert species and they are pretty much edited out of the tropical dry forest, whether it's the reasons for competition with beta lizards or other predators or um, any number of reasons that I, I can't answer those questions. They're, they're fascinating, but they're really hard to. Yeah. Does the, do those tropical dry forests you're talking about um, down in Mexico, do they have a different uh, rain pattern? You mentioned that they kind of live in places that either have like a monsoon type or, or mm -hmm. this, you know, twice a year pattern right. you see yeah. in a lot uh -huh. of the Sonoran. I mean, is the, is the, rainfall pattern much different down there or is it similar? It, no, it, it, well, it's different in the sense that it's um, much more, much greater rainfall. Tropical dry forests get significantly more rain than the, than the Sonoran desert. Um, the rainfall comes predominantly in the summer. There's a, um, an extended drought in tropical dry forests with area where I've worked a lot in Jalisco has really a four month wet season, but it's a big wet season and it's a lot more uh, predictable than the rainfall in the in the de desert areas. Of course, and that's why there's trees there. Uh, so beta lizards have evolved in that habitat. In fact, the the uh, based on fossil evidence and, and and molecular evidence as well, the genus Heloderma evolved in those kinds of habitats, tropical dry forest. Gila monsters diverged early in their history, maybe eight million years ago into as more of a desert species and beta lizards have maintained the, the, uh, the ancestral tropical dry forest habitat. And if you look at molecular diversity among in Heloderma, there's a ton of diversity among the beta lizards in Mexico and Guatemala. Um, they've, they've had a lot longer time to evolve molecular differences. Whereas Gila monsters are younger, a younger species that's probably went through a bottleneck uh, relatively recently in its evolutionary history and, taken out a lot of that diversity, but I'm um, starting to ramble a little bit here and answering your question about habitat, but it's uh, the tropical dry forest um, is, is definitely uh, gets a lot more rainfall and it's predominantly in the, in the summer, the farther South you go, the longer the wet season in general, the earlier it starts and the later it ends. Um, but then there's local influences like rain shadows and other things like in the Motagua Valley of Guatemala, it keeps that place really dry. Um, yeah. whereas other parts of Guatemala are, are true trunk forests. For yeah. yeah, yeah. Hey everybody, I just wanted to take a quick break and tell you guys that reptiles are declining around the world. As an example, turtles are the most threatened group of animals on the planet, with over 60% of all species classified as endangered. The Orian Society works every day to ensure that there's a future for these amazing animals. If you care about reptiles, amphibians, and their habitats, become a member of the Orian Society today by visiting www.orian.org.
Well, let's, I mean, we've been, we've been talking about it a little bit, but I know a lot of your work, uh, some of the papers I've read have, have kind of focused in on kind of these finer scale habitat components. And we've talked about mm -hmm. that uh, mm -hmm. a little bit, but um, so what is, if you're heading out into the field um, and I know this probably varies uh, by year and all of that, but you mentioned the importance of rock and, mm -hmm. uh, and, and, I know that Gila monsters spend a fair amount of time underground. And, mm -hmm. and so I'm just curious what that looks like. Like how would you describe kind of more microhabitat level yeah. uh, use by, by Gila monsters? Well, of course there's, there's the topography. So some element of topographical complexity, maybe washes, goalies, things like that are obviously very important. Um, and then within that general topographical complexity or variability, then um, areas where animals could can have shelters. So um, piles of rocks or uh, rocks along a wash that could be either at the base of the rock dug out by other animals or, and then Gila monsters will modify their own shelters. Uh, burrow systems can be real important. Um, so, you know, it's, it's really variable depending on where you are in the desert. Um, plants are also a really important component. So uh, areas where there's good primary productivity, even if it's just creosote bushes uh, and grasses that are really important for sustaining uh, rodent and, and lagomorph populations. Gila monsters um, love to eat young of, of cottontail rabbits and they'll, eat, they'll get into kangaroo rat nests and things. Uh, so it's, it, you know, it's the rocks are certainly important, but the rocks in combination with, with some, with a, uh, some plant diversity is also super important. And you mentioned, you mentioned beaded lizards and, and how they had the, the association with trees. And you mentioned that they would actually climb the trees. So do Gila monsters do the same thing? Will you find them physically climbing up into some of these microhabitat components, whether it be, say, rocky ledges or up into plants or cactus or whatever it might be, or are they more of a ground-dwelling lizard than the beaded lizards? Oh, yeah. Great question. So to that, I'll answer yes. They are they're both. They're more of a ground-dwelling species because, you know, there's not as much, not as many trees to climb in the in the desert, but but they will climb. They will get up into Palo Verdes. There are records of them getting into trees. They're fabulous climbers in uh, on rocky slopes. I worked, I started my work in southwestern Utah where there are these beautiful uh, Jurassic Navajo sandstone cliffs. Gila monsters will climb straight up them. They are like, they're am amazing climbers. So they, they still love to climb. Um, they don't, I haven't seen Gila monsters climbing into to saguaros and to cacti very much. Um, I wouldn't be surprised to see that. Uh, I bet some of my colleagues in, in uh, Arizona may have seen that. But yeah, they're they're still good climbers, but they they spend most of their time. The shelters they choose are rocky shelters on the ground. In contrast to beetle lizards, who, especially during the wet season, will spend significant amount of time in uh, hollow branches and and uh, cavities and trees up above the ground in trees. Yes, and I'm thinking about the the Gila monster I have, you know, in my office, and uh, thinking about its its toes, they they seem <laughs> almost like fragile or weak. Like I can't imagine them 
climbing with those those toes uh, it, but but maybe i'm completely wrong i mean so how what i'm getting at is how does the Gila monster climb like physically oh, yeah, how do they do it uh, that's a great that's another great so they're they um they grip with those little toes those little claws can really grip oh, okay. uh, and they and if you've ever watched them crawl i call it the heloderma shuffle this sort of uh, there's a technical term for this that I can't remember, but the way they throw their bodies from side to side as they as they move their limbs, they do that when they're climbing, and it almost like shifts the center of gravity in such a way that they're able to 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 grip well with one one limb while they're lifting another limb to find a a, a place to to grab, and. The, the substrate I've watched them climb in the desert is, is usually pretty rough. You know, sandstone is rough and they can really grip well with their, with their claws and those, those little osteoderms on their toes. Uh, it's not like they have suction cups or anything like geckos, but boy, they can, they can grip with those little claws. You'd be surprised. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Well, let's, let's uh, shift a little bit. You t- so you talked about, well, first of all, let me say, We've talked about a lot of things. We've talked about that they live in environments. They live in deserts, first of all, which are known for pretty extreme temperature swings, both, say, over the course of a year and then even, you know, over the course of 24 hours. Um, And then you've also mentioned kind of their connection to, um, you know, to to precipitation and rain and and Mm -hmm. they live in many places that have almost have like a monsoon style where it's like, you know, a lot of the rain comes at one or maybe two times of the year. And so, uh, given all these kind of physical aspects of the environment, how does the, the kind of the activity, if you will, of a Gila monster, both, I guess, you know, in 20, a 24 hour period or say across a year. I mean, h- how does that all, all break out with the, you know, we've talked about, they spend a ton of time in these shelters, but when right. is it that yeah. they're out and moving and active? Yeah. Well, that's another great question. And you're absolutely right. They, they respond to the, to, well, to moisture for sure and food availability and, and mates, that's what drives them. Right. So, um, the, the the timing of activity varies throughout the year and also from place to place. So, for example, in the Sonoran Desert, most of the deserts, um, springtime is a real important time for, for Gila monsters. In warmer places, they'll come out earlier. They'll bask at shelter entrances in the morning, in the springtime. Um, in Utah, that, that basking can start in March April and then go all the way into late May and into, and into June. So those are, that's kind of like morning activity in the Sonoran desert where it gets hotter earlier in the year. Um, they'll be out maybe basking some in the mornings. And then as the summer progresses, as temperatures warm, there's less diurnal activity and more nocturnal activity. So in the summertime, some the best time to find Gila monsters is to go out looking on the roads at night and road cruising. And in fact, juvenile Gila monsters are almost entirely nocturnal. Um, and even adult Gila monsters throughout much of the Sonoran Desert and even parts of the Mojave are, are largely nocturnal in the, in the hot part of the summer. Um, in the Mojave, if there's a dry, because they don't get much summer rain in the Mojave, 
if it's a dry, hot summer, they'll Gila monsters will just stay put, stay under their shelters. They won't come out much at all. There won't be as much activity. There's far more activity around over the year in the in the Sonoran Desert and Chihuahuan deserts because they get more more of that summer rain and they they have warmer summers, especially warmer nights, uh, where where these ant where Gila monsters can be can be active. So it's it's interesting the the timing of activity varies significantly across the uh, across latitude. Longer periods earlier and later in the season, uh, more nocturnality in the south, uh, shorter activity periods, uh, and maybe a little more diurnal activity in the north. And how do those the rainfall patterns? So I've always heard that they become more active, say during the monsoon rains or shortly mm-hmm. thereafter. I'm assuming because they're foraging and. Uh, mm-hmm. You know when there's a lot of productivity on the landscape, is that is that also true that they're they're much more active, kind of in and around those those summer rains? Yeah, they definitely. They need to drink. Um, a cool study by uh, Christian Wright and uh, Dale DiNardo, uh showed that Gila monsters there was sort of a um, belief that they could get all their all their water from their prey because they you know they eat nests so they're food source, it seems pretty rich in water, but they need to drink in order to, 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 uh, to survive, to process energy over the year. And those summer monsoons, those rainstorms are extremely important for them to pick up the, the moisture that they need. My professor, my major professor, Chuck Lowe at the University of Arizona was convinced that they actually soaked up body uh, water, soaked up water uh, across epithelial tissue in the cloaca um, I don't know that that's really been demonstrated, uh, but 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 they are. But water is crucial, and that those summer rains are 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 crucial for for Gila monsters, and that's I think why we don't see them in deserts that that don't get at least some twenty five percent or about a quarter of their, of their annual precipitation in the form of rain. Ah, okay. And, and so, you know, we've already, we've talked about it a number of times, but, uh, but their diet. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we talked about it linked to the rains and, and you talked about it about water acquisition, you know, but, and you've said that they're nest predators. So are they, mm-hmm. does that mean they eat eggs? Does that mean they eat young mammals all the above or, uh, oh. All of the above. Yeah. And, and it's, I mean, it's pretty crazy that there aren't very many nest predator lizards. Um, if you think about, you know, maybe some veranded lizards, some lizards opportunity, opportunistically will, will eat eggs. And, and of course there are snakes that are specialist on eggs and nests, but not that many. Uh, it's a tough resource to, to specialize on because they're, they're hard to find. It takes a lot of searching to find a nest good chemosensory skills to be able to find a nest. Um, and they're not available for very much of the year. There's only, you know, when you're, when prayer are having young, that's the time to find your food. Um, yet, yeah, Gila monsters and beta lizards to a lesser extent, but Gila monsters are, are totally nest specialists for on vertebrate nests. So they'll eat eggs of birds, um, other reptiles, and then they eat the young of mostly mammals. They'll also eat birds to get into bird nests. They'll eat the eggs and the, and the young. Um, so in a lot of the places, especially in the Mojave where I worked, but also in the Chihuahuan Desert, uh, cottontails are really important. Uh, quail eggs, uh, kangaroo rat babies, um, and uh, other lizard eggs are, 
are a really important an important food source. And so are they, I mean, obviously there are probably some nests, some eggs or young mammals around throughout the year, but given that the, you know, again, it's, it's they're the deserts that they live in, just the physical environment has such extremes, whether it be the rain or the temperatures, um, it, it would seem like kind of in those monsoon warmer months that that would be the most productivity in terms of nests. So do they eat? you know, by far most of their food during that time of the year, or is it kind of spread out year round? Yeah, that's another great question. Uh, um, it varies, but generally they, they'll eat most of their prey when obviously when they're, when they're active foraging in the Sonoran desert, that's, that's certainly uh, with the summer monsoons, but also in the spring uh, in May, May is like, we used to call May Gila monster month when I was at the university of Arizona because that's when most people would see Gila monsters. And that's when there's more diurnal activity, especially early in May. That's also when cottontail rabbits are, are nesting. Uh, and there are, other, there are other mammalian prey that are having babies at that time of year that are pretty attractive for a nest predator. And then throughout the summer, um, of course, mammals continue nesting. And then uh, egg-laying uh, animals, reptile eggs are out there and they can find those. Um, so I think... You know, I think they all, they're all important. Up in the Mojave Desert, the big time is spring, is uh, April, May, when I think they get most of, their, most of their prey is during that short period. And because they're, because Gila monsters, we haven't talked about this yet, but I'll just throw this in, because they have really low metabolic rates, even for um, a, a snake, you know, snakes have pretty low metabolic rates overall. Gila monsters are right up there with boa, like boa constrictors and, and rattlesnakes, super low metabolic rate, super uh, energy efficient. And if you're going to be a nest predator and you can only get food for a few months out of the year and maybe some years no food, then, you know, you need to have good ways to store that energy or you're not going to make it. And do they, I've always heard that they store a lot of the energy in their tail. Is that accurate? I'm sure they store yeah. it in many parts of their yeah. body. But, yeah, okay. yeah, they do. Well, the tail, probably at least half of the energy is stored in the tail, but there's a lot of energy stored in fat bodies in the abdominal cavity, just like in snakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, that, you know, they store the energy very well. That low metabolic rate helps them to use less energy. And then they, they have good storage capacity in the tail and in the body. And then um, they're not active very often. They don't put a lot of energy into uh, activity. And it depends on the year, certainly depends on the place. Um, Dale DiNardo and I have had lots of conversations about, well, in the Sonoran Desert, they show a lot more activity and they're not, they're not in shelters 95% of the time. And that's true. Um, but in other places, they are in shelters most of their time, or 95% of their time. But even in areas where they show more activity, like in parts of the Sonoran Sonora Desert, Southern Arizona, they still spend close to 95 or to 90%, over 85% of their time resting in shelters, saving energy. Hmm. Well, so you have this low metabolic rate animal that's nest predator. How, I mean, how much do they need to move? I mean, is this an animal that's out on the landscape, you know, moving miles in search of nests or do they typically have you know say a relatively small home range compared to some other animals? yeah uh, that's a 
Great. Well, the, it, the home range size varies a lot among individuals. Uh, some of them will have um, home ranges more than a mile on a side, a couple kilometers. Um, males especially wander long distances, not just look foraging, but looking going back to shelters they've used in the past where where they've uh, where they've mated with females. Um, so they do wander far through through the landscape. It's just they um, they are all, they're only going to do that if there if there's energy available for that. Um, uh, most okay. years there is. Um, so yeah, home range size. I I don't have the um, specific numbers memorized. You can look in my book, uh, but it varies quite a bit among individuals. And males tend to have bigger home ranges than females, which okay. is common for other herbs too. Yeah. Okay. Well, la- last piece kind of related to kind of movement and feeding and habitat. Um, and then I do want to kind of shift towards reproduction. But last piece is, I think you mentioned it once, but we really haven't talked about it, but this is a, um, this is a venomous reptile. And uh, when most people think about venom, venomous reptiles they think of things like rattlesnakes and they mostly think of snakes mm-hmm. and um as as you well know that most snake venoms are are associated with you know feeding and so why would you have a venomous species that's feeding I'm kind of setting you up here, right? <laughs> you <laughs> but are. like, but like, That's good. I, 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 love know, it. I know Keep the answer going. to this question. Keep going, Chris. But I want to hear yeah. more about it. But <laughs> you know, so why would you have a venomous animal that just ha- is is crawling through these rocks and feeding on like little pinky, you know, rabbits? Obviously, they they don't need the venom to kill those, or to overpower an egg, for example. Yes, it's probably a better <laughs> example, right? <laughs> no, no, yeah. Well, that's a wonderful paradox, and uh, it's it's a fun question that we still don't don't have a totally complete answer to. But um, the venom is used primarily for defense, right? So these lizards do not run fast; they can't sprint like many of the lizards people think of when they think of desert lizards. It, whiptail lizards and and uh, spiny lizards and whatnot, they sprint really fast to get out. You can't catch them unless you're really practiced. A Gila monster's top speed is about a slow walk for a human. So they can't outrun hardly any of their predators. Um, and they're, you know, so they're very vulnerable and they have this warning coloration, the black and the orange coloration on the bodies. They have uh, a terribly, terribly painful bite that if a predator messes with them, um, it's go- not going to forget that that bite. It, the, a lot of the peptides in the venom are built around incapacitating a potential threat, uh, a predator. Um, the peptides drop blood pressure really rapidly. They could cause excruciating pain. There's a number of, of peptides that are built, calocrines, they're called, that are built to to cause pain and to spread pain throughout the body. They've got a hyaluronidase, an enzyme that uh, dissolves connective tissue collagen that a lot of snake venoms have. It's a spreading factor. In Gila monster venom, it serves to help move those uh, peptides that cause pain throughout the body. So first, the pain might start at the extremity where a person's bitten, but then it spreads rapidly through other regions of the body. I've never been had a serious bite 
but um, people I know who have been bitten will will comment over and over again that that uh, it, the the bite won't kill you, but the pain will make you wish will make you think death is the preferred alternative. So so the venom is used for defense, but that doesn't necessarily rule out that the venom could serve in digestion. We don't know how. Mm, we know uh, some work that. That we know that some of the peptides in the venom are um, increasing the prey after the prey have been, or increasing the bloodstream of the Gila monster after prey after the prey has been eaten. There's been a lot of uh, interest in that with the discovery of of Exenden four, the the uh, peptide that's being used for treating diabetes, type two diabetes, which we can talk more about if we have time. But really fascinating topic. Yeah, no, I would love to. I would love to to get to some of that. Um, and we are, you know, we've been on for quite a while already. But um, maybe just give us the the thirty thousand foot level um, on that because I think it is kind of yeah. an interesting, just a real from a human perspective, like a real utilitarian value of this monster, and and something that hopefully everybody could appreciate. Yeah. Uh- I like to give it as my answer to the question, well, what good is that? What good is a snail darter or a copperhead rattlesnake or a Gila monster? You know, why do you care about these animals? And uh, from a a human selfish perspective, which is not the best uh, answer necessarily always, but this peptide, Exendin-4, discovered from Gila monster venom, has led to development of a new group of diabetes drugs called incretins, that are blockbuster drugs. There's billions of dollars of these uh, drugs sold every year, discovered directly from this one peptide in Gila monster venom that attaches to a uh, receptor in the pancreas that causes insulin release and also reduces uh, appetite. So a person, um, people can actually lose weight on on this drug. And it's it's now been used as a replacement for uh, uh, insulin injections in people with type two diabetes. And it's truly a, a, a great example of the value of biological diversity. Not that every animal has to, we have to justify the existence of animals just for human good, but it really helps to have these examples to, to give to people once in a while. And Gila monsters are like the poster child of the value of biological diversity. Yeah, I agree. Thank you for listening to Snake Talk. If you like what you've heard on this podcast, you can help us by subscribing and leaving us a five-star rating. Also, if you have any comments or suggestions, be sure to leave us a review. So let's, uh, last, last part of kind of Gila monster ecology and natural history that I want to touch on is is reproduction. And so kind of, again, building on everything we've been discussing, mm-hmm. you know, we've got an animal that lives in this, as we've talked about a, a landscape with a lot of kind of physical extremes. Um, it sounds like those physical extremes kind of result in kind of peak times at which they, you know, get uh, large amounts of both their food and their water. Um, so I would have to think that, you know, reproduction um, is also kind of, you know, following on that, there is some, you know, kind of a, a, maybe a fairly narrow window. Uh, 
is that true or is it something that it's a much broader, wider window or even a year round phenomenon? No, it's a, it's a narrow window. It's really fascinating. Um, and, uh, it's, so the young, well, the eggs are laid in the, in the summer, July, August at the latest. And, um, if you've read my book, uh, you'll know there was, there's been a mystery for many years, uh, about, about the incubation period in the wild, in wild Gila monsters, because the eggs are laid during the summer, it, about, you know, the, during the summer monsoon. So um, moisture, nest moisture is really important there. Uh, but then the babies never come out. People never see hassling Gila monsters until April at the earliest, May. So not until the next spring. And so that there's always been a question of, do the eggs overwinter in the nest? Uh, do the eggs hatch, say like in the fall and then overwinter in the nest? Or do they go through some period of uh, rested development, like some turtles will do, and then uh, continue developing later in the spring and hatch? And in beaded lizards, um, the closest relative of, of Gila, Gila monsters, their reproductive cycles are very different. They breed at a different time of year. They're, they produce gametes and whatnot at different times of year. Um, and their incubation periods go on for over five months. But this mystery was solved uh, by Dale, Carla Moeller, Mark Seward, and Roger Rep. when Roger uh, got a phone call in Tucson. This was, gosh, I don't know, back in uh, 2012 or something. Um, and they discovered a Gila monster nest. It was a, they were doing some ex- somebody was doing excavation work and found the Gila monsters in the process of hatching in October which is about the uh, right incubation period for what all the captive breeders know um, mm. about, I think it's right around 126 days. Uh, and so the mystery has been solved, at least in this case, that Gila monsters lay their eggs in the summer, July, August, um, and the, the young hatch in the fall and stay in the nest until the following spring and then come out in forage and forage after um, April. In the spring. And I'm assuming that the female, there's no kind of nest guarding behavior. She she Ooh. lays the nest and leaves or does she stay that, with it? Uh, good. Great question. I, um, I don't, I would be surprised if there weren't. Um, female Gila monsters get very, uh, very protective around the time they're laying their eggs. They'll fight with uh, males, with other Gila monsters. They'll even display some of the classic um, c- combat behaviors that males show when they're, when they're in combat for females in the, in the spring in, in like April and May. Um, I don't, I, I don't think there's anyone's observed nest guarding behavior or uh, caring for offspring and Gila monsters, but I wouldn't rule it out. And I, I'm look forward to the day that some observant field biologist who's, you know, can spend the time, can, can help us answer that question. And, uh, and what does the nest physically look like? I mean, are, are they just laying these eggs on the surface? I'm assuming they're <laughs> laying them deep into the rocks. Yeah. Well, um, I'm assuming we haven't, I, I'm, what I'm assuming is that we haven't seen many of them because yeah, they lay uh, them in places where, yeah. where we don't look. Yeah, Chris, I don't have a good sample to draw from to tell you what the nest looks like. I've found I've seen a, a females come out of burrows having lost a couple hundred grams, thinking, oh, my God, I found a nest. And, a, and a Roger 
there was a nest in Arizona back in, I don't know, this is like 20 years ago. It's like, oh, we know there's a nest here. And we dug and dug and dug for hours and never found the nest. They're, they're in burrows in the soil underground. Um, and the only nest that's truly been found was this one that was excavated for a construction site. And it was in a burrow underground. That's all I can say. Huh, okay. We have <laughs> similar issues with indigo snakes. There have actually only been a handful of cool. nests ever found in the wild. Another so, incredibly f fascinating predator. Yes, exactly. So with the, with the how about the, the reproduction part, meaning, uh, you know, so you've already mentioned that males move on average more further than females. And I'm assuming mm -hmm. that has something to do with reproduction. So is it kind of a mating system where males are, are moving longer distances at certain times of the year looking for females? Is there male-male combat? Is there, you know, how does that all break down the breeding process itself? Yeah. Well, that's another, another fascinating question. So males do search for females. Um, a quick antidote from Utah. I, I was tracking when I, this was like in the eighties when radio telemetry first came out and I was radio tracking these Gila monsters, Paradise Canyon outside of St. George. And I tracked a male Gila monster almost over a kilometer, almost a mile from his overwintering shelter to the shelter I'd seen him use the year before. Within a few days of that, another male came. This was in, uh, in April, late April. And they fought this. Uh, first, I, no one had seen it in the wild before or published on it. I thought they were mating, but it, they were two males. They were, and it was combat. So, so males will go far and wide to search for females in the spring and they'll fight with other males. It's rich, very ritualized combat for, uh, for, so they're not biting and using that venom as part of the combat. Well, they do bite in some cases. I've never seen them bite very much when I've witnessed it in the wild, but I've seen, um, I've seen videos from colleagues that where they do bite each other mm, okay. vigorously but most of it is ritualized. Most of it is like snake combat. They entwine their bodies. They try to push the opponent to the ground, you know, reminiscent of, of, of leg wrestling. Um, but also, I observed in the Chihuahuan Desert, where I radio tracked a population of Gila monsters for almost six years, uh, females would crawl into shelters with males. Males would crawl into shelters with females. Another female would visit several males in the same spring. Um, and so I don't know that the mate searching is just done on the part of the, of the males. Females, certainly there's some mate choice going on. Um, there's some really fascinating things that we don't understand. And anytime you answer a question like this, as though you know something, <laughs> you actually know the answer, then the animals are going to come out and like show yeah, you yeah. you're wrong. In the, yeah. So there's still a lot to be discovered, I guess, is a short answer. Yeah. Do we know if uh, if an uh, individual female – uh, could say mate with uh, multiple males and store the sperm and end up with kind of like multiple paternity type situations in the nests. I don't know that that's known, but I, it's very probable, and I would not be surprised. Like it is in, in many snake species, right? Yeah, exactly. So okay. it likely is at least based on the the behaviors I've watched um, with males and females sharing the same shelters during the same breeding season. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised they end up with multiple paternity. Okay. Well, I have a lot more Gila monster questions, but I feel like we do need yeah. to start taking this in for a landing. But the last <laughs> thing I want to ask you about Gila monsters, uh, and then um, 
Well, the last thing I want to ask is kind of the applied side. You mentioned kind of the value, um, you know, in their use in developing medicines for diabetes, but um, more, I guess, the status of Gila monsters in general, maybe range wide, but, you know, are there particular parts of their range where they're in decline and are a concern? Is there much, uh, you know, conservation and management work being done? Um you know, what are some of the issues? I know, uh, you know, they're quite attractive animal. I'm assuming there's uh, pet trade issues with them, either legal or illegal. I don't know, but, mm-hmm. but just kind of that whole applied side of yeah. the Gila monsters world. How would you, how would you kind of talk about that? Yeah. Well, they are they, throughout their range. They're, um, a species of, of concern everywhere they're found. They're protected in all the States where they're found. Um, so a person can't, it's really hard to get a collecting permit unless you, you know, you have, a, um, credentials and a really good reason. So they're protected throughout their range. There's some areas obviously within their range where they're in, in a lot more, at a lot more risk of extinction than other places. And predictably, those are the places that are on the edges of their distribution, especially in the Mojave desert. Um, and especially where there's lots of human, uh, impacts and, and human, uh, development and, you know, activities, agricultural development, uh, recreational development. One of the, the most at-risk populations is in southwestern Utah around St. George uh, because that area is incredibly beautiful and attractive to people and it's, um, it's undergone explosive growth in the last several decades. Um, there is a cons- conservation plan that the Division of Wildlife Resources in Utah has put together doing their best to try to to save them. Uh, but it's, you know, it, as you know, for a lot of reptiles, it's an uphill battle. Um, that population is not listed as a distinct population. So there's no special consideration that they would be given under the Endangered Species Act. Mm-hmm. So uh, Nevada populations uh, similarly are, are probably are, are at risk. Um, Arizona population, some areas certainly, uh, but Arizona has such so much Gila monster habitat that that the Gila monster is in pretty good shape there. Uh, southwestern New Mexico, those populations are pretty remote and pretty uh, immune, or I shouldn't say immune, but they're not experiencing a lot of uh, development and habitat fragmentation right now. Uh, and then beaded lizards in Mexico, there are areas, of course, we mentioned we talked about the Guatemalan beaded lizard. There are places in Mexico where they're they're vulnerable. Um, on the flip side, the, the thing about Heloderma that's, that I just think is incredible, it's really influenced my career, is that they are an animal, they're a venomous animal that people warm up to much more so than, than snakes. And I, I love working with snakes and sharing my enthusiasm for snakes with people. But with Gila monsters, it feels like it's a little bit easier to break through that barrier of fear and to replace it with respect. And I think working with Gila monsters, being able to tell the story of Bieta, of the diabetes drug, because actually the peptides that were discovered, the actual discovery of those peptides came from Gila monsters I had studied for my master's back in the 80s. My, one of my mentors, Jim Glenn, gave venom samples to John Ang, the one who discovered these peptides. He was at a, a VA hospital in the Bronx. So I think on the public education and the outreach side of things, Gila monsters are incredible ambassadors. Um, they're help, helping to treat people with diabetes. They're, they're really 
cool and they're interesting and they're beautiful. And so, you know, at the same, the same, uh, I guess I'll just end there um, with that, with that statement. Great. Well, um, so, you know, I don't want to take too much of your time, so I'll let you answer uh, this uh, in as much detail or or as quickly um, as you'd like. But obviously, you you know, you your work ex- uh, goes well beyond uh, Gila monsters, and you know, as we talked about, you work with snake ecology, and you know, even across other taxonomic groups um, in that southwestern region and mm-hmm. up in the northwest um so yeah just is there any anything you want to highlight about your lab and, and the work you do with your students beyond uh some of the things we've talked about with heel monsters well i'm gonna i'm gonna also be uh respectful of your time as well and i know your podcasts are limited uh to you know they're time limited mm-hmm. i would say that it's been it's been an honor to be able to work with so many amazing animals and people. The The rattlesnake work we're doing, Northern Pacific rattlesnakes are pretty abundant here in Washington. And we're, we've are we done work with uh, looking at growth rates in, in, among individuals and populations by measuring the rattle segments because the rattle segments on a rattlesnake carry a record of growth like tree rings. Uh, and if you get, especially if you, if you can uh, sample younger individuals, you can actually look at their growth rates um, mm. and you can compare those across different habitats and, and try to understand how variation in landscape and habitat features affect growth rates and life history characteristics of rattlesnakes. So that's been a, an interesting part of the work I've done recently. I've gotten more and more into outreach work uh, with working with the public, with snakes, um, and that's been extremely rewarding. And I just feel I've had some amazing graduate students over the years who have done some great work. Um, so I think venomous animals to me is, have sort of taught me that they are kind of a gateway into helping humans cope, come to grips with what they fear and what they misunder, what they misunderstand and turn that fear into respect. And I feel like these days, um, working with venomous animals and trying to help people understand they're not bad. They're fascinating. Um, is this, is not that different than trying to work with, uh, helping people get along with each other better and realize, trying to realize that you don't have to be afraid of others or angry with others. You can listen and you can learn and, uh, develop a sense of respect rather than anger or, or fear or loathing or whatever. So, yeah, that's it. Timely message. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's um, let's imagine that that we are down somewhere in the southwest, and we've just been out looking for Gila monsters, and we're sitting around a campfire. And um, I turn to you and and ask you to tell me your best snake story, or maybe in this case, your best Gila monster story, whichever you prefer. Okay. Well, thanks, Chris. That um, so. I'm going to tell you, this is not, this is a story, but this is a true story. And for many years, I was afraid to tell this story because uh, it was too incredulous to, to be thought to be true. But my brother was a witness to this story and I've, I wrote about it in my book and you, some people, you probably may have heard this before, but this was after I had finished my master's degree. This was in 1986 and I was on my way down to Chimela in Jalisco, where I was going to start working on beaded lizards. 
I was with my brother. We're driving through the desert. It was in June because I had to take classes until late in the in in the spring in the summer. I couldn't get down there earlier. Hot and dry, and just you know, a tough time of year to be out cruising in the desert. So we we uh, we decided to pull over in a, a little um, a slope uh, saguaro uh, habitat near a near a ranchito out in the desert. We asked the people if we could camp. In their in their little milpa, their little near the edge of their cornfield, and it was super hot. We, you know, I hardly had anything covering my body because I was hot, and I fell asleep. And you know how when you're sleeping, uh, you, herpetologists always have these great dreams of turning a rock and finding the most beautiful mountain king snake or whatever. Uh, in my dream, I had picked up a green iguana, this beautiful iguana, and I'm holding the iguana in my hands in my dream. And you know how your dreams kind of conform to a what's going on around you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I woke up uh, and I sat up on, in my sleeping bag and I was holding a Gila monster in my hands. <laughs> uh, this was at about midnight. A Gila monster had crawled into my, my bedding. It was just up, up to, to, in my waist. I'd picked a Gila monster up in my sleep and I had, I was holding it behind the head. It wasn't angry or struggling. It wasn't moving, wiggling around. And I was just like, oh, my God, uh, a Gila monster. And I started yelling at my brother. It's like, John, there's a Gila monster. You won't believe it. Oh, my God. And he, and he just, it's like, shut up and go back to sleep. You're just dreaming. <laughs> but I had picked up a Gila monster. It had crawled into my sleeping bag in my sleep in the Sonoran Desert in Mexico. And you and I probably know plenty of field biologists who spend a lot of time in the desert and have never even seen a Gila monster, let alone had one crawl into their sleeping bag. And I had been studying them per, for years before, and I was on my way to work on the, the sister species, Heloderma horridum. And so I figured this was like a message from the great <laughs> monster god. And, uh, I, and, and that story gets more incredulous to me as I get older and think about what, a, what an amazing thing that was. And I think you, you and I were talking earlier about the book and what inspires you to write a book. And I think it was – you know, this might sound silly, but I think I felt like I was almost chosen. Like you have to do this. Mm-hmm. So that's my story. Great. That's a great story. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> oh, anyways. Well, so, uh, Dan, thank you so much for, uh, spending time with us today. If people want to learn more about you, uh, how can they, do you have a website or. Oh, sure. Yeah. Like I'm easy to find. Up? Yeah. Sorry. Oh, no, no. Yeah. How do people find you? Uh, Central Washington University. Uh, you can find me easily at my at our my website on campus or at the university. Uh, Beck D at cwu.edu. Shoot me a message. Um, I always I enjoy answering questions about heloderma and other things. And Great. thank well, you will... for your work, Chris. Thank for you for your work too. Thank you for that. Um, and we, uh, I'll put that in the show notes, the link to your website as well. So, um, it could be easy for people to find. And I've encouraged everybody to try to get their hands on this out of print book because it's a good one. And if you have any questions, sounds like, uh, Dan's open to answering them. So, um, yeah, well, I just wanted to thank the audience for being here today and to remind everybody that snakes are animals too. And it's a privilege to see one in the wild.